The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, of, <clears throat> that great city and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days' walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. The king removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence. Who knows? God may change his mind. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Jonah became angry and said, O Lord, that is why I fled at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Take my life. The Lord God appointed a bush. God appointed a worm that attacked the bush. God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Should I not be concerned about Nineveh? This is the word of the Lord. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria overran the ten northern tribes in the latter part of the 8th century before the Common Era. Nahum said of Nineveh, It is vile. It is bloody. It is violent. It is a harlot. There is no indication that an Israelite ever preached in Nineveh. There is no indication that the people of Nineveh nor her king ever repented, ever changed their ways. In fact, they survived as a strong capital city until someone more vile more violent, more bloody, more the harlot than they, from Iraq, ancient Babylon, overran them and destroyed them. Why this story then? Did you see Christmas Carol this Christmas? Dickens' famous tale about old Ebenezer Scrooge, who is visited one night by three spirits. The first, the spirit of Christmas's past that took him all the way back to childhood and showed how he made some wrong decisions as a young man that had brought him to the despicable state where he now was. A second spirit arrived, the spirit of Christmas present, showing Scrooge how wonderful Christmas can be when greedy merchants become kinder and more forgiving, when Mothers and fathers sacrifice everything possible for little children who have so little. When children who have so little had rather their brother or sister would have more than they have. What wonderful things Christmas can be when people eat together, drink together, dance together, enjoy being with each other. A third spirit comes. The spirit of Christmas is future. Ebenezer Scrooge is told that in the household of of uh, Tiny Tim, there will be an empty chair. 
There will be a plate with no food. There will be no need for food. This child has died because he didn't get proper medical care and attention. That the two big enemies coming into the world are always hunger and ignorance, or ignorance and want, the spirit of Christmas present tells him. And finally, Scrooge has shown his own grave in the cemetery and people making fun of him after his death. And he finally cries out, Is this the way it has to be? Or is this just the way it may be? I believe the story of Jonah is God's inspiration of the question, Is this what happened to Nineveh? Was this necessary that such a large city with so many people should be destroyed, covered over in time by the blowing winds of the Middle East, or only the way it might not have been? Let's take a look. Four things. Number one, Jonah. Jonah's not a nice person here. He's not nice. Uh, We're told that God came to him one day with three imperative verbs. Get up, go to Nineveh, and there proclaim what I tell you. Now, from where Jonah was at Joppa, Nineveh was east and north. So Jonah went south and west. He set sail from Joppa, headed for Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, the jumping-off place into the Atlantic Ocean, as they saw it. There's a terrible storm sent by God. And the sailors on board the ship were of the old school. If something bad is happening, something must have been done terribly wrong by somebody. Was it you? You? I? No. He, Jonah. Jonah said, it it was I. Uh, God told me to do something. I didn't want to do it. Throw me overboard. I couldn't care less. They threw him overboard. But God isn't through with Jonah. Big fish gulps him down, swims around for three days, and spits him out on the beach of the Mediterranean. Jonah comes to, and God is right there with the same three verbs. Get up, go to Nineveh, proclaim what I tell you. Same message. We're not done, Jonah. You and I, we're not done. Get up, go to Nineveh, proclaim the message. So Jonah starts walking into the city. We're told it was a big city. It would take one three days to walk across it. Jonah doesn't get even halfway, doesn't get to the center point, walks in about a day and suddenly screams out, 40 days and you'll all be destroyed. Starts back out of town. That's who Jonah was. God's man. Dr. Robert Gorell is our pastor at Church of the Servant, United Methodist in Oklahoma City. He recently wrote to his people about a famed Roman aqueduct in Spain. You remember when the Roman Empire uh, controlled Western Europe and the Mediterranean Sea, and they built these magnificent engineering feats, aqueducts that would carry water for uh, miles and miles from mountains to a hot and arid area. And one of these aqueducts was built from the mountains down to Segovia in Spain, very hot in Segovia. It has carried water there since 109 of this this common era. More than 1,800 years, more than 60 generations of Segovians have drunk water, cool and wonderful, from the mountains that have flowed down the Roman aqueduct. When somebody got the bright idea 
that it would be worth more if it became a tourist attraction. So they decided to pipe the water from the mountains down to Segovia and turn the aqueduct into a tourist attraction. They could build shops, sell souvenirs, made in China, that sort of thing. And so that's what happened. They rerouted the water. And guess what happened to the aqueduct? It started to fall apart. In just a few years, it was falling apart because as long as the cool, wonderful waters flowed through it, everything functioned as it ought. When the grouting began to dry out, it began to decompose. And Dr. Gorell said to the United Methodists at Church of the Servants, guess what? Christians who've forgotten what they are about, who no longer do that function for which they were created, they begin to decompose and to fall apart. Israel was chosen by God to tell the rest of the world there's only one God. And this is what we've learned about God, and this is what God expects from all of us. Israel didn't always get that right. And I believe God was inspiring this writer to say to Israel, but what might have happened in Nineveh if I'd had a man, a woman, to tell my story? I didn't have a man or woman to tell my story to Nineveh. And they all perished. Was that so necessary? When the church becomes a place that we come and know it's going to be warm in the winter and cool in the summer, and we have nothing else to do but complain that we don't know hymn number two, or number three wasn't quite so familiar as we thought, or somebody didn't get the cookies baked, or the pizza was overdone, then the aqueduct begins to fail. When the aqueduct is carrying water, life-giving water, when there's still a man, a woman, a congregation, a Sunday school class, a choir, a Bible study group, a disciple Bible group, any group that remembers our function. We've been brought into the mission with the Jews. We Gentiles have a place at the table, and we're to help the rest of the world know there's only one God. This is what we've learned about this God, and this is what this God expects of all of us. Number two. Well, Jonah doesn't do a very good job. But the people believe. And they put on sackcloth and ashes. And even the king is impressed. He takes off his beautiful robe and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and then makes a proclamation. I'm telling you, everyone is to turn from your violent, evil ways. And they do. Have you ever put on sackcloth and ashes? I did a few years ago. I was at one of our general conferences, this one in Cleveland, Ohio. Gail was there. One of the big worship services was a time for white people to fess up to many of the ways we've mistreated black people in the United Methodist Church. How we mistreated them at the time of the Civil War, how we mistreated them when North and South branches reunited in 1939. How we built colleges for them, but it was for them. And whites were to go to other colleges. In time, we started getting it right, but we went through years and years that we didn't get it right. And we had a long worship service that night, culminating in our putting on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is rough. It's like burlap. 
old toe sacks, they called them when I was a boy, feed sacks for how, horse and mule, cow feed, many, many years ago. Rough. And we had ashes affixed to our foreheads, very much as we do at Ash Wednesday. And we were to say, if we really meant it, I'm sorry. If I had any part in this, I'm sorry. If I denied any child of God his or her rightful place, if I ever denied that any child of God had been cut off somehow from the love of God, the hopes of God, the promises of God, I'm, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. And this word in Hebrew, remember, for repent, is not only being sorry, but being willing to be turned, to act differently. Kathleen Norris has written about her own spiritual pilgrimage for some years now. And recently for Christian Century Magazine, she wrote about an experience she had just last summer, six months ago. She had an invitation to participate in an interfaith gathering at a Roman Catholic monastery in Minnesota, St. John's Abbey. Uh, they really wanted people to sign on for a whole month to come from any number of different religious backgrounds and to see how they could get along for a month at this monastery. She said there were long periods of silence when you were not supposed to talk to anyone, but there were shared meals, lots of time then for discussion. She said at the end of a month, one night they were all asked, uh, any questions that one of you would like to ask of another? And she said, one Japanese Zen Buddhist asked the head of the monastery, Sir, I see that the brothers who live here are very poor. They wear the same clothes, washed and washed and washed again. I was allowed to peek in the rooms. They're very modest. The beds look hard. Not much light. Nothing for entertainment. Food is mediocre. Nothing special. But I perceive a joy among the brothers. How, sir, do you account for the joy? And Kathleen Norris said, you see... The question is, have you really been turned? Are you really behaving differently? If not, why not? Why not? If only Nineveh had had a preacher, maybe things would have been different. Number three. The third important part of this story is God, of course. The king said, if we will stop the violence, if we will all turn from our evil ways, maybe God will change his mind. Remember what Jonah had said, 40 days, God's taking care of all of you, destroying you. Maybe God will change his mind. Has God ever done that before? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. The Hebrew part of the Bible says, oh, sure, God can change his mind. Once upon a time, he said, when Moses had gotten the children of Israel back to Mount Sinai, and he went up that same mountain where he'd seen the burning bush for God to give him a way for these people who'd been enslaved for 400 years to structure their community, how to get along with each other, with somebody else telling you what to do and what not to do for 400 years. Now you're free. Well, you're, how are you going to govern yourself? took 40 days and nights, and Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. 
and found that the people had taken off their rings and their earrings, their bracelets and their necklaces and molded them down and made a calf, one of the old gods of fertility. And God said, I've had it with them. I want nothing more to do with them. They cannot be patient for 40 days and nights till we get this job done and you get back down the mountain with the tent. I've had it with them. And Moses said, please, these are your people. These are people you love so much that you faced down Pharaoh with plague upon plague, that you parted the waters of the sea, that you fed with manna and quail from heaven, that you caused water to gush from the rock. These are your people. What will the rest of the world think if you turn your back on your people? Oh, I see what you mean, God said. Okay, you're my people. Let's go on from there. Can God change his mind? Well, yeah, I guess so. The Bible says he can. And this time he says, you know what? I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. Not going to destroy. No, I'm not going to destroy. There's a new play in New York. David Ives has a new play called The New Jerusalem. Gail and I were in Amsterdam just uh, three years ago. We spent a major part of our vacation in, in the Netherlands. And there's lots of interesting history around uh, the Netherlands. But one of those is a famous trial that took place in a synagogue there in the year 1652. Now, when I was going to seminary, you had to have certain prerequisite courses before you could get in. And one of those was Philosophy 101. And when you took Philosophy 101, one of the persons you studied was Espinoza. Remember that name? Spinoza. Spinoza was only 23 years old, brilliant, when he was called before the elders of the synagogue in Amsterdam and tried, and found guilty, tossed out the door. What Spinoza was saying is that I believe there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. And of course, he didn't know nearly as much about all that in 1652 as we do today, Nonetheless, he said, I can see the hand of God, but I do not believe God involves himself in the lives of individuals. He tried him and threw him out because the elders of the synagogue said, oh, yes, he does. Oh, yes, he does. Now, we have to be careful if we raise the question because, you see, that's what David Ives' play is doing is raising the question for the theater goers, does God involve himself? Does he? Read about a skier this week, decided to ski beyond the boundaries, had a big snow the night before, set off an avalanche, and he died. God's not likely to rescue you if you do that. If you drink alcohol and get behind a steering wheel, God is not going to keep you from killing yourself or some innocent person. If you've been told now for 40 years that you're safer with your seatbelt on and you choose not to buckle yours, God is probably not going to intervene to save your life. But what the elders in Amsterdam were saying is, when God's story is told... God intervenes to help the hearer believe it's true. God does intervene 
when God's story is told to Nineveh, there's a chance they will hear it and turn and be different. There's a chance. If we only have a preacher, if we have a teacher, if we have someone who lives out God's story, there's a chance. Number four. We go back to Jonah. He's angry. That's what the word says. He's angry. Now, we use the word hot. You know, somebody's hot. In Hebrew, the word anger has to do with fire in the nose. And God gets angry slower than other people because he's got a bigger nose. It takes longer for fire to build up in God's nose. But when it does, you better stand back. He's slow to anger. Uh, Jonah gets angry. Jonah's angry. He's got fire in the nose here. And God says, what's the matter with you, Jonah? Well, he said, this is the reason I went to Tarshish in the beginning. This is the reason I left Joppa and went in the opposite direction. Because I know the kind of God you are. I knew what you were going to do. I know you were merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I just want to die. Now, Jonah here is just quoted from several different passages of the Hebrew Scriptures. The word merciful is a Hebrew word that means womb. God's love is like that of a mother who would let somebody kill her before she would offer up a child, who would throw herself over her child any time. God's love is like that, the Bible says. This word uh, steadfast or abounding love is chesed. It's the word used more than any other to describe the very essence of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. God is never failing, constant, dependable love. Jonah said, I knew it. I knew what you were going to do. And he's mad. Just, I want to die. Goes out and sits down in the sun here in the Middle East. And... The Bible in Hebrew uses a very specific verb to tell you what God does next. Here in our Bible, it's, it's translated appointed. One translation I read this week said delegated. God saw Jonah sitting out there, hot, fire in the nose, angry. And he causes a plant to grow up over him and shade him. Barely has the plant started to shade him when God appoints delegates a worm to go and bite the plant. plant dies. And then it says God appointed or delegated an east wind. That means right off the Saudi Arabian desert. And then it says the sun beat down on his head. In Hebrew, it literally says the sun attacked his head. The sun attacked his head. And Jonah's getting hotter all the time. And God asks, Why are you angry? Should I not have been concerned about so many people in such a big city? In literature classes, professors teach this story as one of the greatest short stories ever written. It just has four chapters, 48 verses. And it is marvelously, wonderfully told. 
Is what happened to Nineveh what had to happen or what might not have happened if God had only had a preacher, a teacher, one living out his or her faith? Sue Monk Kidd, in her book, First Light, describes various moments when God turned on a light for her in her early years. She was a young married woman. She and her husband sort of struggling to get along in their faith, learn what they could, when they signed on to be volunteers one night at a homeless shelter. She said, I was frightened. These were not the usual kind of people I was around. I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to be doing, so I was sticking really close to my husband. We got in this huge room with just row after row of cots, 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 waiting for men to go to bed. And suddenly, from across the room, I saw a man looking right at me, and I could tell he was coming toward me. He had on an old green suit. I don't know if he found it in somebody's trash barrel or what. It had been worn for years, probably by him. Now, for years, it was ragged, not clean. had a yellow tie on with it. The place he lived, all the places he went, it wasn't nearly as yellow as it once had been. But you could tell, green suit, yellow tie. And he had a blue book under his arm. As he got closer to me, I, I guess I was nudging a little closer to my husband, so the director of the shelter said, that's James, he's completely harmless. Cannot read nor write. He'll probably want to talk to you, but he's harmless. He will not hurt you. And she said, suddenly James was there, and he asked, would you like to look at my book? And she said, all I needed to do was nod, so he started through the pages of his book. There was an old napkin from a restaurant on one page, and he told me it was the greatest meal he had ever eaten in his life. She said, I wondered who bought him a meal at that restaurant. I don't know if he ever ate there or not. He thought he did, remembered that it was great. There was a bird feather, she said, on the next page. said he found it in the park one afternoon. He looked up in the tree, and there was the bird to whom it belonged. Prettiest bird, he said, prettiest bird in the world. He had a faded old birthday card. Had it first been sent to him, had he found it, picked it up, who knew? It was there in his book. He remembered having birthdays as a little boy. He remembered they were fun. They were happy times when he had a birthday and a cake. And then she said there were, there were autographs, signatures. And I started reading them out loud, remembering that he could not read nor write. I started reading what people had written to him. And after I'd read through them, he looked at me and asked, Would you sign my book? And she said, Surely. And I wrote, To my newest friend, Suma Kid. And she said, When I read to him what I'd written, he let his fingers trace as if it were Braille almost. And then he folded up his book. And he went across the room and lay down on one of the couches, the cots. And she said, I realized then something that I could learn from James. Every night before you sleep and every morning when you get up, check your book of blessings.